this evening. Thank you for a chance to come together to worship you, to hear your word, and to hopefully grow closer to you. Lord, we pray that as we, as we dive into another section of 1 John tonight, that you illuminate your word for us, that you help us to see things we haven't seen before, that you, that you speak to us through your word, that, that, that through uh, our look tonight that we, we understand something else new about you, something that draws us closer to you. Lord, we also uh, pray that you move in us to, to inspire change, to inspire us to, to live better lives, lives more like you've called us to live, lives more like Christ. And ultimately, we, through that, we pray that we experience the blessings that you've promised in that. Lord, we pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So tonight, we're going to, be con- we're going to continue uh, our journey through 1 John. Uh, we're at 1 John 3, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip to 1 John 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Uh, now, if you are reading through 1 John, uh, you'll know that this is a, uh, a particularly difficult section of 1 John. Uh, it's, it's got some really tough stuff in it. Uh, and so I, I've, I wrestled with it for quite a while. Um, and honestly, I'm, I'm, I hope I can do justice to it in 30 minutes. There are probably five or six different sermons you could pull out of this section, but I think too often we can shrink things down and take little bites. And so uh, tonight we're going to actually try to tackle the whole thing in a, in a big bite, which means that we're going to be left with some sections that, that you may still have some questions about or, or you may want to still keep thinking about or you may want to just sit with for the rest of the week. So it's going to be something you're going to have to chew on for a little bit. You'll probably walk out still thinking through some things. And I, I hope that's okay. I, I, you know, I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but I get to try some new and different things at night. tend to be gracious folks here, so I hope that this happens tonight as well. Um, I did, uh, a while back, we walked through First John in a Bible study, and over there on the, which Sandy just grabbed, is, are my notes from that Bible study. Uh, if, you, if, you, if they'd be helpful now, you're more than welcome to get up and get some. Otherwise, grab them before you leave. Um, it can be something you can work through through the rest of the week as you continue to think through some things. So let's begin by reading 1 John 3, 1 through 11. It says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, we are, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that we might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one, continues to, no one who continues to sin, sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does, who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who, does, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So maybe you saw the spots that are a little sticky, 
So all the spots that are tough to wrestle with. Um, John makes some pretty bold statements here. He says phrases like, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Got to let that one sit there for a bit, right? Or, anyone who does not do what is right is not, a, not God's child. Ouch. Uh, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. He also says no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. We got to do something with that, right? That's tough. Those are incredibly difficult statements. And so our goal tonight is going to be to spend a significant amount of time, actually all of the time, just trying to understand this passage. In the midst of that understanding, I'm going to ask all of you to think about how that might apply to your own lives. So usually in a sermon, I would tell you what the passage means, and then I would tell you what to do with it. I'm going to give that second part of the responsibility to you. I want you to think about what to do with it. I want you to think about how this might apply to you individually. I want, to, I want you to pray about how God might use it in your lives. Ready? All right. Here we go. So really, this passage breaks down into two major sections. The first section is verses 1 and 2. And they're the lens that we have to read the rest of the verses through. It begins by saying, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. So it begins by saying that we've been adopted into God's family. We've been invited into the very presence of God, into the house of God, into the blessing of God. Essentially what it's saying is that what, God's, what is God's is ours. That we're part of that family and we share those things. We have full access to him. We're part of a different kind of family. And hopefully you can see why that's a big deal. That you, hopefully you can see why that door being open is so significant for our Christian life. We have full access to God. God treats us like sons and daughters. What is his is ours. And the Bible goes on to make sure that we know that he doesn't just dole that out lightly or, 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 or hold some back and give us a little trickle of his love. It says that God has lavished his love on us. He's holding nothing back. We're, all of it's available to us. And so it continues on by saying, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and, that is, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So it's a big deal for us to be adopted into God's family, to have access to God in that kind of way. But we still live in a broken world. The kingdom is here already, but not yet fully. If you've been around the CRC long enough, you've heard that phrase. It's kind of one of our catchphrases that we, love to, that we love to say a lot. The kingdom is here, but not yet fully. And so what that essentially means, though, is that we can experience part of God's blessing now, part of what it means to be live in, inside of, be in a sonship or daughtership of God, but we can't know it fully yet. There's something greater coming. And this passage tells us that that something greater we can't even understand yet. And what it means by that is just for a minute, if you were to try to imagine what the world would be like without any of the effects of sin, can you do it? I mean, there's no sickness. No one's lying to each other. There's no pain. There's, there aren't mosquitoes because those have to be a result of skin, sin, right? So none of that exists. Can you, can you even wrap your mind around what that would actually look like or feel like? My guess is you can't, not fully, right? We're, we're too in, ingrained with sin to fully understand the hope that's coming. We understand that it's going to be good. Right? We, can, we get, for those of us who are in pain, when we think about a time when there will be no more pain, we go, that's going to be great. For those of us who have experienced different kinds of hurt or struggle, 
The time that that's not going to exist. Those of us who read the news and are just frustrated by what we see, we understand that it will be so much better when that's all gone, but we can't understand it to its fullness. We do understand that what's coming will be unimaginably better than what we already have. And we're supposed to know as well that what we already have is good too. We are with God. So we begin with this understanding, the understanding that God's love, of what God's love means to us for right now and what it will mean in the future. We understand the good that we already have and the better one that's coming. And with those understandings, we can move into verse 3, which says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is is pure. So essentially, we all know that we are not like Christ yet. Uh, We are still experiencing the sin, still experiencing sin and its effect on our lives. And because of that, we can experience the fullness of the reality of life in Christ now. But the hope that's still coming motivates us to work in that direction. We realize that there's something greater coming and that we we start to purify ourselves to be like Christ now because there's something greater coming. We work towards that. Because of the amazing hope that we have coming, we live the kind of lives Jesus taught us to live and as a result, move closer towards that kind of reality here and now. You see, the entire book of 1 John has been repeatedly declaring this truth. It's been repeatedly declaring there is life in Jesus. So strive for a Jesus-like level of perfection. If you haven't reached that yet, John says, then you have work to do. And he actually goes on to say, by the way, you're never going to actually reach that. Your goal is to reach a Jesus-like level of perfection, is to be like Christ. He sets the bar as high as it will go and says, walk towards it. If you're not there, you have work to do. Keep going, and you're never going to make it. Now realize, John isn't trying to make us all feel like failures here. He, he knows we can't make it. He says it in the book itself, and yet he tells us to strive for it anyway. Because he knows that achieving the end goal isn't the sign of success or failure, the journey itself is blessing. As we continue each day to walk towards being more and more like Christ, we experience what that means in our lives. We experience a heightened level of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and etc. So John continues on in verses 4 and 5. And says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So we know from the very beginning that God has always desired for us the best kind of life. In the Old Testament, the law was meant to guide us towards that kind of life, and it did so in two ways. Now, I don't have time to fully break that down, but luckily Tony did some of that for me this morning, and I didn't know he was going to, but he did. Uh, The entire law is meant to lead us towards the best kind of life in two ways. One, uh, to increase our love for God. The Old Testament is is founded on two things, to love God and love our neighbor. So the Old Testament law is supposed to bring us into a better relationship with God, which is the best way to be. The second thing that it does is it increases our love for each other, thus creating better relationships amongst each other, amongst people, which is also the best way to be. And so we know that sin is a violation of the way that God wants us to live, a violation of the way God created us to live in relationship with him and relationship with with each other. Essentially, it's lawlessness. Now, 
before we can continue on to understand fully what this means to us, we have to understand two major concepts uh, in the book of 1 John. Now, I wish I had time to go into detail on all of these, um, but I don't. I, could, uh, I can just give you a 10,000-foot flyby. Um, if this is something that doesn't make sense to you, he, he didn't like it. So <laughs> if, if it's something that doesn't make sense, you feel, free, feel free to come talk to me about it later. <laughs> Oh, so sorry. Um, 10,000 foot flyover, thank you. Yeah. Um, and so there, the book of First John contrasts two major ideas. Uh, and we talked about this, it talks about this Jesus level of perfection that we have. But then it also contrasts, contrasts these two major ideas the idea of justification and sanctification. Um, if you are not familiar with these terms, what justification means is, is being made right with God. It's, it's the idea that uh, it's, it's what Jesus did on the cross, that we, we owed a debt and he paid it, and now we're right with God. A good way to remember justification, if you, if you, um, if you have to do it some other time, is the phrase, just as if I hadn't sinned. So Jesus' death and resurrection, re- resurrection in God's eyes makes it just as if we hadn't sinned. We're washed white as snow. We're made right again. It allows us into heaven. And so we have, we have sections of 1 John that talk about justification. But we also have sections of 1 John uh, that talk about sanctification. Uh, Justification is just as if I hadn't sinned. And sanctification is working out that salvation with fear and trembling. Or in other words, it's the slow, lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. It's the constant striving to live a life that's more and more holy. Now I hope that makes sense to you. Justification, just as if I haven't sinned. To be made right with God. Sanctification, the slow, lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, honestly, I could preach two sermons on both of those, but I don't have time. So hopefully that makes sense, and we'll, we'll just keep going forward. I don't see tons of blank stares, so I think we're okay. So we'll bring those two ideas back to the chapter. In the Old Testament, the way someone was justified was through the law. If they sinned, They were told what sacrifices to make to make it right. If you do this, you do this. If you you sin against God, you offer this sacrifice. If you sin against a person, you do this thing. That's the way you were justified in the Old Testament, uh, then eventually through Jesus Christ, Um, uh, which which obviously was a difficult system, which is why God gave us a better one. And we see that here in this verse as well. But you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. This passage is speaking about New Testament justification, the the justification we find through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to make us right with God and make it just as if we had no sin, and we get to live within that New Testament promise. All right, so if you're still with me, this is what we've said so far. This is what the passage has said so far. It says, We have been adopted into God's family. With all the benefits that that entails, his love has been lavished on us. Because of that, we experience the hope of the gospel now partially, leading us towards a fullness that's coming. And as we live in this hope, we strive to purify ourselves, try to live the best life possible in order to experience God's blessing now and move towards the kingdom life that is coming. And we do all of this because Jesus has justified us. That's how we've walked through so far. So I hope we're all still tracking, because this is where we get to the really sticky parts. We move into verse 6, which says, No one 
who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one, can, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now up until this point, we might be okay. We can say, okay, John, I get it. We have, we have this idea that we're adopted in the family of God, and, and because of that, we want to live these, these pure kind of lives. But at this point, I don't know about you, when you read that, you go, hold on a minute, John. Calm down a little bit, right? No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That's difficult for us because, honestly, which one of us doesn't keep on sinning every day? I do. It's something that we have to wrestle with because we have to ask ourselves the question then, does that really mean that none of us have ever seen or known God? My guess is that we all would have a problem with that if if that's really what that must mean. So as we look at that, we talked a bit about justification, and now we get to talk a bit about sanctification. In order to begin here, uh, the word live in verse 6 can also be translated abide. Now, for, now, so essentially what it would say is, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, the words live and the words abide are similar, but for some reason, abiding for me is a little easier to wrap my mind around it. It seems like there's an action in there. And so all of what, essentially what it's saying is that all of us have areas in our life in which we abide in God. That's why we're here tonight. There are areas in our life in which we, we, we listen to the way God is leading us, that we listen to the direction, we do what he's saying. For some of you, it may be you, you, you abide in God and when you know that you have to tell a difficult truth. Right? You, the on, honesty is, is something that God says that we all need to have. And so you abide in God in that, and even when things are difficult, you'll speak the truth. Or for others of you, maybe it's in forgiveness. Even though forgiveness is very difficult, you abide in God and forgive in the way you need to. Or in your disciplines of your devotional life or your worship life, whatever it may be. Maybe there's multiple areas in which you abide in God. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are also areas in our life in which we do not abide in God or in Jesus. There are areas in our life in which we just as soon keep to ourselves. And honestly, there probably are areas in our life that if we were honest with ourselves, we'd prefer that Jesus just keep his nose out of altogether. There are areas in our life that that while we're in the midst of it, we hope God's not watching. Maybe, Maybe not for all you, for me at least, right? Where you're like, okay, for this little bit, I don't really want to abide with Jesus. I don't really want him there at all. I just assume keep control of this myself. I don't want to do whatever he's asked me to do. So we have these areas. We have areas that we abide in God, and we have areas in which we don't. And so keep that idea in your head for just a second as we tackle the next part. It says, no one who continues to make a practice of sin has either seen him or known him. The first thing that we need to realize is that the the Greek idea of to to sin here is, is a continuing action kind of thing. So to continue to make a practice of sin. It's important because it doesn't mean little mistakes here or little intentional sins that we come into from time to time. It's not someone who just sins uh, randomly, uh, is all of a sudden not seen or known God. It's someone who continues to make a practice of. Uh, It becomes habitual in, has neither seen God nor, nor known God. So if we understand that idea of sin, we next need to ask ourselves what it means to know Jesus. Now in English, to know something is to be able to recall it, right? You know what 2 plus 2 equals. It equals 4. You're able to recall that understanding in your head. If I were to say to you, I know who George Clooney is, you would understand what I mean. Like, I understand the concept of him, the movies he's been in, maybe some quotes that he has, what he kind of looks like. Uh, You would say, "I, I know him. 
And so in our English language, most of the time when we say no, we're talking about an intellectual recollection. Uh, in both Greek and Hebrew, to know something most of the time has a deeper, more significant meaning. It's to know something or someone. In the same way that I know who George Clooney is, I have absolutely no idea who he is. Right? I don't know him at all. I don't know his heart. I don't know his motivations. I don't know what kind of person he is regularly. I, I don't know him really at all. I know my wife. Right? I know who my wife is. I know who George Clooney is. They're definitely a different. Most of the time when we're talking about Greek or Hebrew, we're talking about the knowing, like I know my wife. So to know Jesus in that kind of deep understanding kind of way. So, uh, when, what essentially then what this passage is saying is that when you know Jesus, you are no longer able to be comfortable in your sin. Let me explain that. So have, you, have any of you ever experienced Jesus' confr- co- uh, confrontation of your sin? When you realize what you're doing is wrong, can you remain comfortable in it? My guess is that you can't. That, that if you know that something is wrong, it's, it creates an uncomfortableness in you. And, and we actually get really creative to try to eliminate that. Because we can't get rid of the uncomfortableness, what we have to do then is either shove it out of our mind so we don't think about it anymore. Some people like to do that. They push it completely out of their mind because if they ever think about it, they become uncomfortable in it. Or we try to justify it. We try to call it something that it's not. We try to say, well, the reason that this is happening is because of all these different things. Because if we're really to look at it, we would remain uncomfortable with it. Or we, uh, we try to deny what it really is. We try to call it something that it's not because if we were to really look at it, we would still know that it would make us uncomfortable. We know, because somewhere deep down inside of us, whenever we're doing something that we know is wrong or we, that we should assume that is wrong, uh, we realize that it's not leading us to the fullness of life that's found in Christ and we can't avoid that, right? So essentially what we're looking at here then is that no one who knows Jesus can remain comfortable in their sin. And we know from the previous verses that they shouldn't be comfortable in their sin. Uh, Because it's holding us back. So we seek daily to know Jesus more and more, to know the blessing he provides for us, the life found in the gospel, and then we abide in him, allowing those promises to shape our lives. Because those promises drive us away from sin and towards a fullness in Christ. So to recap again, this is where we've been so far. We've said we are adopted into God's family with all the benefits that entails. His love has been lavished on us. Because of that, we experience the hope of the gospel now partially, leading us towards a fullness that's coming. And we live in this hope. As we live in this hope, we strive to purify ourselves, to try to live the best life possible in order to experience the blessing of God now, moving towards the kingdom life that is coming. We do all of that because Jesus has justified us. And then, we begin, and then in that, we begin towards abiding in Jesus in every area of our lives. Not holding things back, not keeping areas for ourselves, but knowing that Jesus desires the best for us. Knowing that he is far better than the sin that we've tried to ignore or justify. That he desires that we strive constantly toward, towards being like him, towards a Jesus-like level of perfection, to experience the fullness of life in that. All right. We're... We're halfway there, but we're not home yet. I hope you're all still with me. 
We continue on to verses 7 and 8. It says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So don't be confused. To, understand what, to just understand what we have to do doesn't mean you're actually doing it. So you may have been listening this time and saying, all right, I, I understand that there's this need to purify, there's this need to do these things that God has led us to, and that may lead us to a kind of blessing. But if you don't do anything with it, it doesn't mean anything. You can have all this wonderful understanding of what you should do and where that should lead, but if you let it stay there, it doesn't mean anything. Faith and works need to work together to produce righteousness. It's essentially the same things that, that James says, that we have to work together with what we know and actually work it out to produce anything. It says action is required because there is not a neutral option. Either we will make a practice of living the best kind of life or we will make a practice of sinning. There is no neutrality here. There's no holding pattern. It's one or the other. It's really important here to realize that, that John is speaking in a kind of black and white statement. He's, he's saying that there is no neutrality. Either you will live walking towards God or you're walking towards the devil because there is nothing in between. But it's not an all or nothing statement. There are areas in our life in which we make a practice of righteousness, similar to the way, they're probably the same areas in which we abide in Jesus. There are areas in our life in which we practice the way God told us to live. But, just like there are areas in which we don't want Jesus, there are other areas that we make a practice of sin. Each of us has that in our lives. Now, I don't want anyone to walk away from this message feeling like if, that if you failed in any way, you're the devil incarnate. That's not what John's saying. That's not what I'm saying. But at the same time, we do need to realize the severity of not making a practice of righteousness. John says, when you close God out, close God out of the areas of your life, whatever they may be, when you refuse to let him abide or don't seek to know him, John says you are actively working against the kingdom mission. He says the devil has been sinning, working away from the way things are supposed to be. And he's been doing that from the beginning. And the kingdom's mission is to undo that work. When you allow Jesus to abide in, the areas of your li- in all areas of your life, and you allow the kingdom to begin working in your life, you begin to undo effect- the effects of sin in your life. And the, the, the best part about that is you begin to undo the effects of sin in your life even while you continue to struggle with sin. As you start to walk away from the life that you know you're not supposed to be in, as you still stumble, that's all part of redemption. But if you don't allow Jesus in those areas, you actually contribute to the brokenness of the world, actively working against the kingdom plan. Now, I know those are tough words. That's tough for us to hear because we don't like to think that we might actually be working against God's desire for us. But John doesn't hold back, so we have, to, we have to just rest with that. We have two choices. We can either live the kind of life that God has called us to live and actually begin, even in the midst of our sin, to undo the things the devil has tried to do, or 
we can actually work to help the devil accomplish what he's been trying to accomplish. There is no middle ground. And so finally, we get to verses 9 and 10 to bring us home. Which says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or their sister. So John is speaking frankly here. There's a sense of urgency in what he has to say. He's speaking to a culture that's being influenced by many false teachers who are significantly tainting the gospel. Now, I wish I could say that things have changed significantly in the last 2,000 years, but TCT is on the air still, so there's that. (laughs) Sorry. I watched it the other day. It made me real mad. Um, Anyway, uh, but we, we live in a culture that's the same, influenced by many false teachers who are significantly tainting the gospel message. We do need to keep this in context, though. He's already said earlier, like we've said, if anyone claims to be without sin, they're a liar, and the truth is not in them. So then he must, be, he must not be saying that anyone that has sin in them is fully of the devil, right? Or, or a child of the devil. It needs to be on a, on a smaller scope. And that's kind of what we've talked about already. Each of us have percentage of our lives in which we give over to God. It's the idea that we've been working through this whole time. Some of us, maybe we've given 50% of our lives to God. Well, that's great, but then we've got to continue to work for 51, 52, 53. Other of us might be at 60 or 70 or 80% or even 90% of our lives to God. But what this passage is saying is that God is not satisfied with anything less than 100%. Those who have, given, uh, those who have God in them are given a holy discontentment with anything that they haven't given over to God. Whether If it's 90%, the 10% of your life creates a holy discontentment. If somebody refuses to forgive, they don't really know Jesus' power in that area of their life, true? And so those who have been born of God will have a holy discontentment uh, leading us out of that into the fuller bit of life that we can have. God's not satisfied with anything less than 100%. So it leads us to this last bit of the passage. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right, those who do not practice righteousness, are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers or their sisters. So essentially what it's saying is those who do not have a holy discontentment about their sin or continue in it without remorse or conscience are not God's children. Now let me be very clear on what that might mean because I think we can get into a really sticky situation here. There are people in the world that, that don't view sin as being wrong. They don't have a discontentment in them because they don't have the Holy Spirit to produce that discontentment in them. There are people, whether we like it or not, who aren't saved. It's, it's just the reality of the world we live in. There are people who, who aren't saved. Who, who, that's what it means when it says aren't children of God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. That doesn't mean that God doesn't desire to have them be part of this thing that we talked at the beginning. It means that they're not there right now. And so, as we see that, what, what that means then is that we approach those people differently. Not, not in a way that makes us better than them, or in a way that we can even judge what, where they stand with God or not, but it, it's an evangelistic idea that there are people, uh, when Jesus approaches uh, non-religious people, he does it in a certain way, 
and he approaches religious people in a different kind of way. This is simply an evidence of someone whether they are saved or not saved. Now, when you're, when you're observing this evidence, I want to challenge you to be really, really careful to make that judgment because, the, like I said, the judgment is made for an evangelistic opportunity, not so that you can declare whether someone is saved or not saved. Uh, because honestly, uh, uh, when you're trying to see if someone has a holy discontentment about something or not, um, how often in our pride have we claimed that something doesn't bother, the, bother us, even though if we're truly honest with ourselves, we know it does? You know what I'm talking about? So on the outside, I'll say, this thing that I'm doing doesn't bother me at all. The fact that I get angry every now and then doesn't bother me at all. I, I think I'm a good person most of the time. The thing is, we know that deep down inside, it really does bother me. We can, and you couldn't know that because the shell I would put on, you couldn't see through. So when you're making a judgment about someone, whether they actually have a holy discontentment or not, uh, don't make that quickly. Because the measure that you use on someone else may come back to you. So one of the clearest evidences that we can have if someone is God's child or not, this passage tells us, is love. Uh, To love one's brother or sister, which actually sets up the entire next section uh, of 1 John. Uh, Because you can get a bonus verse. In in verse 11 it says this, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, To bring this whole thing together, what have we talked about in this whole big bit is this. We have been adopted into God's family with all the benefits that that entails. His love is lavished on us. Because of that, we experience the hope in the gospel now partially leading us towards a fullness that is coming. As we live in this hope, we strive to purify ourselves, to live the best life possible in order to experience God's blessing now and move towards the kingdom life that's coming. We do all of this because Jesus has justified us. We then begin to work on abiding in Jesus in every area of our lives, not holding things back, but knowing that Jesus desires the best for us, knowing that he is far better than the sin that we have tried to ignore or justify, that he desires that we strive constantly to be like him, to strive towards a Jesus-like level of perfection. And then it finally says, we cannot be satisfied with knowing what we should do and why. We must actually strive to act on what we know. Constantly moving, even if it's a little bit at a time, towards the kind of life Jesus has called us to. And all of that begins by loving God and loving each other. 1 John 3, 1-10. Whew. I, I feel like I should ask if there are questions, but that's weird because this is a sermon. I don't know if that's loud or not. Maybe I'll have to do that at the end. I don't know how that goes. Um, maybe I will. Well, how, did, how did that sit? I, this is a little unorthodox. I get it, but uh, maybe we're not going to. All right, so I stretched outside the box there. Why don't we just close in prayer then? Father God, Thank you for this evening. Thank you that we could uh, to work through a difficult section of Scripture. I pray that as each of us wrestles with some of the hard things that are here, I pray that you move in each of us, that you give us a holy discontentment for the areas in our life in which we've kept from you, areas in which we know that you, which we should know and that you've told us there's something better out there, even if it's difficult. We pray that, it was, that each of us walks with you, each of us knows you better. 
we can work, walk away from, from the brokenness of sin in our lives and towards the fullness of life in you. We know all of this is only possible through the power of your Holy Spirit, so work in each of us. In your heavenly name, amen. Join us in our last song, closing song.